Um, let's open once again to Mark, the fourth chapter. We're going to continue working through this parable. Have you found this helpful? Okay. <laughs> Mark chapter 4. It's one of those questions you don't ask, I guess. <laughs> if you're an attorney, you never ask a question of a witness you don't know the answer to, so that may apply to this as well. <laughs> Mark chapter 4. parable of the sower. It's a, um, I'm sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't make that out. <laughs> um, Mark 4, we'll begin with verse uh, 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Now, we, uh, uh, we took some time to explore that. Uh, I want again tonight, just for a few moments, to revisit that. The sower is sowing the word. So one of the subjects of this, prob or this parable, rather, is the word of God. And, and Jesus is describing it as a seed. That's important, particularly as we consider its work, its transformative work in our lives. Uh, hold your place there and turn with me to Genesis, the first chapter, where, where we learn about the seed from God's perspective. This is the creation narrative. Uh, Genesis 1, let's begin with verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. I'm reading from the NASB. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. So God set in motion um, something perpetual. Trees that yielded fruit which contained seeds, and those seeds would reproduce after themselves. Seeds are fascinating. I really enjoy gardening. I've got a large um, organic vegetable garden and then raised beds up by the patio where we grow herbs and tomatoes and things of that sort where the deer love to come in and munch on them if you don't keep them close to the house. I, I finally strung electric wire around the large garden. It sounded pretty bad, but I tried everything else. But um, they find a way. They find it for, for one season, I actually put music and played music at nighttime. And uh, that worked. But apparently they, they acquired a taste for it. And I thought before long I'm going to find the stations changed. <laughs> um, and so the buck stops here had a whole new meaning. Um, but the thing that fascinates me about gardening is I can take a seed, rather nondescript thing, 
put it in the ground, and everything necessary to bring forth fruit after itself is contained within that seed. It simply needs the proper medium within which to grow, and it needs to be watered and cultivated. We yearn to become more like Jesus, don't we? We want to lead fruitful lives. And as we allow God's Word to grow and increase in our lives, all that's necessary for you and for me to live godly lives, to live life in a fashion that reflects the reality of Jesus within, is to allow the seed of God's Word to yield fruit in our lives. We simply need to create an environment welcoming to it. Cultivate it, and it will produce fruit after itself. So my attention needs to be really on what? The seed. I need to be so attentive to that. And, and of course, let's return to Mark 4. We saw last week that Satan comes immediately to steal away the Word which was sown. Again, I'm going to repeat myself a little. The thief, Satan, comes to steal away the Word which was sown for one reason. The Word alone poses a, a, a threat to Satan's work in and through us. And it poses a threat to his dominion in the earth. When believers, those who follow Christ, are empowered with God's word and his spirit, Satan finds it very difficult to neutralize God's purpose and plan in our lives, but he also finds it very difficult to contain God's work in the earth that he wishes to do through us. And... and. Uh, he can prevent that. He can short-circuit that process simply by stealing away the Word which has been sown in our hearts. Somehow, uh, somehow um, terminating that process before it really uh, gets going. Neutralizing that threat by stealing away uh, or negating the effect of that seed in our lives. So again... Uh, one of the important subjects here is the Word of God, which is being sown in our hearts. Verse 16, in similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on rocky places, who when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. Well, that sounds, that's positive, isn't it? That sounds like a good thing. They've heard the Word immediately. They recognize its value, its inherent goodness uh, something, as something valuable to them, and they receive it with joy. Yet they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary then. Then, rather, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. I want you to know that word immediately. It occurs twice. They immediately receive the word with gladness, and yet when difficulties arise as a consequence of having heard and received that word, immediately they are offended. They abandon that word. Now remember, Satan is coming to steal or negate the effect of the word of God in our lives. 
First, he approaches through argument. Simple reason. And that's enough for some people. Oh, that's absurd. They hear the word and they think, well, that's absurd. Jesus died for my sins. What does that even mean? This sounds like some silly slaughterhouse religion. I don't have any time for that. He can appeal to them on on, uh, the basis of reason alone. Paul, we, we looked at this last week, Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 10 to cast down vain imaginations, reasonings, human rationale that would uh, uh, hold us in bondage, make us captives to a lie, and uh, imprison the Word of God in our lives. And he said we are to treat all such thinking, all such errant thoughts as enemies sent in to steal. He said we are to take them captive, to tame them, and bring them into the obedience of Christ. And he he addresses this in a fashion that suggests we have to be very, very, very vigilant about that. God's word is uh, extraordinary. And in a setting like this, uh, we can read it, enjoy it, and feel very comfortable reading it and discussing it with one another. However, on the other side of those doors is a world that, if not hostile to the Word of God, at least uh, looks on it with a jaundiced eye. Either they don't understand it, or it seems like a silly uh, childhood fairy tale. And when you're talking with people like that, uh, there's a strange, it it can have a strange effect on us, can't it? suddenly you may look at God's word differently. You may think, well, it is kind of odd, actually. Start to question it for a moment. It's funny how quickly that can happen. Particularly uh, when you look at ancient Near East religions and you think, well, this, this almost looks like a replica Arguments that on their surface seem uh, rational, that seem to hold some water. Those sorts of arguments, they they may seem um, uh, benign, but they're really not. Paul is suggesting that there is behind these simple arguments um, a sinister, uh, something sinister at work. Something that is, is being sent in to take us captive. And so he urges us to be vigilant, just as Peter did. Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we really can't relax. There is a battle um, that's set in array against the believer, and it unfolds most often right between our ears, in our minds. And so we really do have to be vigilant about monitoring our thought life and, and uh, looking more closely at the arguments that we uh, may be facing just in our own imagination, in our own thought life. And understand how subtly 
our adversary works. And over time, you may discover your faith in God's word or in certain elements of it being eroded. And so that when you need finally to call upon it, you're struggling. Instead of being able to confidently call upon the Lord, confidently, confidently being able to turn to his word uh, for answers, instead, you're, you may find yourself questioning its validity or questioning its strength or its value. This is a serious battle that we are faced with regularly, whether we acknowledge it or not. It can happen right under our noses, and, and we're largely unaware of it simply because we're not focused on that reality. So he comes with argument. But if we're being vigilant, and we'll talk about that in a moment, how we need to regularly expose ourselves to the truth, um, the, the, uh, he escalates his battle against us. Simple argument didn't work, so now he comes in force. This person has heard the word of God. They immediately receive it with gladness. Now, why might they receive the word of God with gladness or with joy? What is the gospel? It's a, it, it means simply good news. So this is real positive stimuli. Oh, man, that's fantastic. That's, that's super. I love this. This is fantastic. But then they encounter resistance. And they identify the source of their problem as the Word of God. And immediately, just as swiftly as they embrace it, they abandon it. This is someone who's living largely out of their emotions. They encounter positive stimuli, I'm happy, hooray. Negative stimuli, oh, what a bummer. I need to, I need to get rid of whatever is causing this pain, whatever whatever's driving this conflict in my life, I need it gone now. And they just abandon the Word of God. Now, how do we avoid that? I don't want to be the person who surrenders to an argument immediately, but I also don't want to be the, the um, sort of, of hearer who abandons the Word of Truth just because I've encountered challenge, because conflict has come my way. And, and, it may not, and it may not be something so obvious uh, as to say, well, that, this is happening because I've heard the Word of God. But challenge may come in a way that finds you resisting God's counsel or doubting the promises that it holds for us. And it, and it has the same effect. Have you ever been challenged to abandon your, not your faith in God, but your faith in His promises at a particular moment in your life? You were trusting God, and suddenly things uh, turned against you. Uh, your life was visited by problems. Real challenge showed up. And it seemed to suggest that this word that you were holding fast to um, either is untrue or no longer true for today or not intended for you and in either case you choose to abandon it and to tackle that challenge with whatever resources you have at your disposal sans God and his word and that happens a lot and I want to suggest to you 
that you may, uh, there may be, there may be portions of God's word. There may be certain promises that you embrace much more readily and much more confidently than other promises found in God's word. I'm of the mind that these uh, categories of heart, these types of ground, can exist simultaneously in our hearts. I think there are some arenas in which we are ready to trust God. And there are others where we are not. His promises uh, are somehow stolen from us, or we abandon them when we need them most. And yet there may be other promises that we hold fast to without any real challenge. I think a lot of times it's the doctrines of men and the traditions of men. You remember Paul warned against uh, teaching uh, for doctrine the doctrines of men or the traditions of men. Um, often the, uh, the doctrines of men may be well-meaning, uh, but based in an experience or, or, or based in ignorance. And they can hold real sway over a believer's life. Or it may be tradition alone that dissuades people from believing a certain promise. The gifts of the Spirit. There, there are vast swaths of Christianity that do not believe they are valid. For this day, they believe they had their place uh, uh, when the church was first being launched and being deployed, but at some point in time, they ceased to exist. And when you meet someone who, who has been taught that, and, 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 and that, they have, that has been um, inculcated into their thinking. That's, that's their view of God's Word. That's their view of the church. That's their view of church history. They can't imagine anything otherwise. It can be a real challenge uh, dealing with people like that and helping them to see that that, that, that may not actually um, be true. That it may be a misreading of Scripture. But it can be a real challenge. And I've watched people resist um, God's best because they held to a tradition that they had been taught. A doctrine of man that said, this is not so, or this is so. We can be subject to that in our own lives. Think about areas of God's Word that you, you find no challenge believing. But other areas where you, I, I really don't know. Healing is another um, area in which some people are really challenged. You mean God heals today? I, I don't think so. I, I know Jesus healed. I have no trouble believing that. And I see a record of miracles in the early church in the New Testament. But I, I don't think miracles happen anymore. Do you know there are lots of Christians who believe that? They love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They just don't believe that he does miracles any longer. Are they being robbed of something? Is there a certain sort of fruitfulness that their life can lack? Sure. And yet they may be wonderful, wonderful Christians who bear all sorts of wonderful fruit in their lives apart from that. So I think that 
that these kinds of soil, these categories of heart, can exist simultaneously in our lives. And so we, we want to examine our heart regularly and see, are there, are there areas in which I'm resisting God's best? Are there ideas at work in, in my own thoughts concerning God that are errant, that really don't harmonize with His Word? They, they may... Uh, they may be in agreement with certain traditions I've been taught. They may agree perfectly with certain doctrines I've been taught. But have I really, have, have I measured those traditions? Have I measured those doctrines against the word of God itself to determine how valid they are? So keep that in mind as we're working through this tonight, okay? Um, so they immediately receive it with joy. I don't want to be that person. I want to receive the word of God with joy but then I want to keep holding fast to it. How can I avoid being the believer who when a challenge visits me, challenge that challenge whose intent is to what? To steal away the word or at least mitigate its effectiveness in my life. How do I avoid be, being that person? And it can listen. It can happen to any one of us. In fact, if we're not intentional about it, it will happen to every one of us. Uh, we have to be very intentional about this matter if we're to avoid some of these pitfalls. So how do we avoid being the person who hears the Word of God and receives it with gladness and yet encounters issues on the other side of those doors in real life that causes us to abandon our trust in, say, that particular word. Let's look at, um, well actually, let's start with Deuteronomy 6. It's about regular exposure. We began this uh, study by citing John 8, 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, continue in my word. Continue in my word. It's interesting in, in this parable of the sower in Mark, the word here is used four times. The first three occasions when the word was um, uh, stolen away, uh, when the word was abandoned, and finally when the word is choked out, the word here, there, it's past tense. The verb is past tense. It suggests a simple final act. They heard it, they responded, and then it was over. The word here as it's used in that final category of heart or category of ground is present tense. It's suggesting a continual, persistent effort. It doesn't stop. Jesus said, to those Jews which believed on him, continue in my word. Then you're taught of me, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So there's this commitment to continual exposure to the truth, to the word of God. Romans 12, verse 2, we'll, we'll get here to Deuteronomy, simply says that we're to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. This process occurs as we expose ourselves regularly to the word of truth. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
a generation is being prepared to go in to enter into the promised land. Now, we talked about this promised land last week. Numbers, the 13th chapter. Was it a land that flowed with milk and honey? It really was an extraordinary place of beauty and abundance. But there were enemies dwelling there. So in order for them to inherit the promised land, they actually had to go in and possess it. You know, I think a lot of God's promises are like that. We have to possess them. We have to lay hold of them by faith, appropriate them by faith. And in the face of resistance, persist in believing that that's God's word to me personally, that I can trust him for its fulfillment in my life. I, I, wouldn't it be wonderful if there were no challenges? Heaven is without challenge. But here we deal with an adversary, and, and so there is challenge. And uh, I, when I think about sickness, you know what I think that it is? I think it's the absence of health. I, th I think a thief is trying to steal my health away. So I want to lay hold of God's promise, the redemptive work of God in Christ that purchased for me salvation, a salvation which impacts me on every level, spiritually, Mentally, psychologically, in my soul, and in my body. I believe that salvation was complete for the total man. Spirit, soul, and body. And so I want to lay hold of those promises that um, secure that for me. Even in the face of challenge. Or perhaps I should say, especially in the face of challenge. I said something last week, I want to repeat it. Too many of us mistake the presence of challenge for the absence of God. It's a mistake. Just because you encounter challenge does not mean God is absent from that situation. Too many times we've read a closed door where we encounter challenge. Our first reaction to sickness shouldn't be what is God teaching me through this? Our first response to sickness should be, this is not God's best for me. There are promises for me to lay hold of and to receive. I want to see God's power released in my life and in this circumstance. I want to lay hold of this wonderful promise that God has given me. Deuteronomy 6, we read, um, Hear, O Israel, beginning with verse 4, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. How do we get them on our heart? You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You've seen the phylacteries when a, a young man is being uh, bar mitzvahed, uh, tied around with straps of leather, a little box that contains scripture, and, and one around their forehead. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as 
frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I've seen people print out promises and put them on their bathroom mirrors or on their refrigerators or on their somewhere in their automobile. What are they they're essentially practicing this, aren't they? They are keeping God's word before them. Particularly if it's a promise they, that is particularly maybe pertinent to their situation at that moment. And they are, being, they are reminding themselves intentionally throughout the day. Look what he's commanded them. Teach them to your children. When you sit in your house, talk about the word. When you walk by the way, talk about the word. When you lay down and when you rise up. In other words... We should, we should be conversant in the Word of God and so conversant, in fact, that it is seasoning and flavoring our speech all day and all night. Turn with me just a few pages over to Joshua, please. The first chapter. Joshua now, Moses has passed away and Joshua is preparing to lead this second generation into the promised land. Why the second generation rather than the first generation? Why didn't the first generation, uh, in fact, march into the promised land and inherit it? Well, do, uh, Paul explains precisely why. In Hebrews 3, he said, so we see then, verse 19, they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Well, how does faith come? Does faith come for, by praying for it? Oh God, give me more faith. Give me more faith, God. Oh Lord, just give me more faith. That's tempting, but no. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So this regular exposure to the Word of God, that's really what, uh, what uh, uh, Moses has commanded. And now God tells Joshua, uh, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Now is God giving them the land? Yes. He's giving them the land. Say that with me. Giving. But he's giving it in a way. That requires them to take it away. From who? Those who would keep them from it. He's given the land to them. Nevertheless. They have to go in. And take it. So they have to be intentional. They have to be proactive. They have to believe that despite the fact that there are people living there, they're not pitching tents. These people that live there are living in great walled cities. But this is the land that God has given them. <clears throat> this is your land that God has given you. These wonderful promises we read in the New Testament, all the promises of God in Him, in Jesus Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, or so be it, Lord. 
they are there for you and for me to lay hold of, to appropriate by faith. So he tells Joshua, I want you to go in to the land which I'm giving them to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great rivers, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Listen, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Didn't he just say that? Only be strong and very courageous. Do we read somewhere in the New Testament, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? When are we, when are we encouraged to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? We are encouraged in the companion book to the book of Joshua that we have in the New Testament. What book is that? Let me give you a hint. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Ephesians. That's the companion book, really. It parallels the book of Joshua. We we are told of these wonderful promises. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul opens up the book of Ephesians with that remark. And then he continues through the following chapters explaining that life is unfolding, not merely on a physical plane, but on a spiritual plane. And then the suggestion is pointed that what we see unfolding in the physical world around us has its roots in the world of the Spirit. And so after carefully walking uh, um, the church at Ephesus through these truths, he, he comes to chapter, of course they weren't broken up into chapters and verses then, but he says, finally, my brethren. This isn't a finally, uh, in my mind he's not saying, okay, let me wrap this up. He's saying, finally, having brought you to this point now, let me say this. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, the uh, test and schemes of Satan. And then he talks about the, the um, um, help me here, the, um, not categories, but the rankings the rankings of these spirits that we're dealing with, that, that we will counter um, through the Word of God. But the armor of God that he lists, is uh, it's a unique description of various facets of the Word of God and the work of his Spirit in our lives. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. God spoke it to Moses, but guys, he's also spoken that same word to us. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Because he's called us into a promised land and only the strong survive there. Only the strong survive in that land. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law 
shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. To meditate upon it when? Isn't that essentially what God told, uh, or, or what Moses spoke to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but uh, you need a fuller diet, steak, and fish, you know. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You cannot really live the life God has planned for you and called you to without a steady diet of the Word of God. And it's not just a lesson book so that we can get a gold star in Sunday school. It is an instruction manual for life. It is a mirror we gaze into, according to James, to see who we are now in Him. It is a book full of wonderful promises that you and I have been given in order to receive and see them fulfilled in our own individual lives or through us fulfilled in the lives of those God is calling us to minister to. Let's look at, uh, on our way back to the New Testament, let's stop at Psalm 19. It's one of my favorite psalms. It is um, a beautiful description, I think, of the Word of God. Psalm 19. Um, let's begin with verse uh, 7. Psalm 19. No, oh, it's, it's 840. I need to wrap up here. Sorry. <laughs> Um, I told you we would be very deliberate about this. We're going to work through it piece by piece. Is that still okay? Okay. I will, not, I will try not to stall too long. <laughs> um, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Isn't that a beautiful description of the Word of God? That is a good news to us. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, let's turn there now as we, get, as we prepare to close. Um, there is not only the need to expose ourselves regularly to the Word of God, but our approach needs to be, we'll, we'll, we'll see this uh, next week. Uh, in Luke, we read that those who receive the Word and bring forth fruit receive it out of a good and a noble heart. That means motivation matters. Why are we reading the Word of God? Are we approaching it with humility? Are we approaching it as Paul urged us to approach it? That is, that uh, a man who thinks he knows something knows nothing at all. When we approach the Word of God, we approach it with perfect humility. We pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, teaches us His Word. That He causes it to come alive. That somehow He... he um, overcomes our prejudices, our biases, our ignorance, um, our preconceived notions, and we discover um, God as He really is, not simply as we've imagined Him to be. Uh, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, 
Let's begin with uh, verse um, 20. Um, I'm going to pause here for just a moment. I'm head over heels in love with Jesus. I just adore him. And I want to please him. And I want to serve others by reflecting him wherever I go. When I interact with people, I want them to see and experience Jesus in me. So my life needs to undergo transformation. I want to be transformed more into his image. How does that happen? I mean, if you've been, I'm sure you've been frustrated before by, uh, and not just behaviors, but perhaps just something in your life. I want that to be more reflective of Jesus in me. But you may also have areas uh, of pain, of hurt that, that have crippled you. Uh, maybe you respond to people in certain situations in a way that's not entirely healthy for you, for them, or for the relationship. And you want to move. Am I talking to anyone in here? <laughs> and you want to move beyond that, don't you? And it's have you ever been puzzled? You've thought, uh, I'm, I, 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 I just, I will never respond that way. But in the right setting, the right circumstance, you can find yourself responding to a situation or responding, and not just responding to people, but responding to situations in a particular way that is not productive. And, and if you step back, you start to see a cycle, a persistent cycle. And that suggests, okay, there's, there's something deep-seated here. I'm making these choices repeatedly, despite the fact I've intended not to consciously it intended not to and yet somehow there's something deep-seated that triggers this response and you want that finally removed from your life how i mean i remember years ago uh, as a very young Christian being exposed to the idea that you just, well, you write it down and you just make a determination. I am not going to do that thing. And then we had accountability partners. That doesn't work. Does not work. You know what accountability partners do? They make everyone master tailors of fig leaves. They just learn how to fashion fig leaves. How's everything going? Fabulous. Super. Great. You having any problems with that area? Well, no, I'm doing good. <laughs> they don't, it doesn't work. But even if it does, I mean, then, then it just becomes uh, two people commiserating together. Well, how you do? Well, geez, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But the change doesn't really come. There's a better way. What is that way? Ephesians 4. I don't want to fashion fig leaves do you i mean uh, I, I god wants us to be transparent with each other but it's not enough just to be transparent because then you've just got people who are like uh well you know you're flawed and i'm flawed so let's just be flawed together and so i i'm i'm not i'm trying i'm not to be flippant here but we just sort of 
you know, we share our stories, our war stories, but we never really seem to move beyond them much. That's not what these groups are for. We should be moving beyond those behaviors, but it's not a matter of willpower, it's the power of God's Word at work in us. Ephesians 4, um, verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceits. Well, how many of you would like to lay them aside? He made it sound rather easy. Oh, well, just lay it aside. There you go. It's not quite that easy because it, it jumps back up. And that you uh, 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 corrupt according to the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So sandwich in between putting off the old man and putting on the new man is what? Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. A renewed mind. If we want to be that type of ground which hears the word of God and receives it immediately with gladness, but we do not abandon it, we do not allow it to be stolen away from us, then we need to expose ourselves regularly and continually to the word of truth. I had a joke the other day. Some uh, Anglicans decided to read through the Bible together in one year. And at the end of that year, they said they were deeply impressed because they found so much of the Book of Common Prayer in the Bible. <laughs> The Book of Common Prayer, it, that's one of the wonders about it. It is replete with the Word of God. I think if you go through uh, the daily offices and, of course, the um, liturgy, in three every three years you've read through the Bible, essentially, which is wonderful. Um, but what you need, you're not going to get if you're only receiving the Word on Sundays and Thursdays. It needs to be a daily thing. Reading the Word on a daily basis. And, and we have so many technologies available to us today. We can listen to it in our cars, on our phones, walking, uh, when we're going to bed at night. Um, it takes a lot longer to listen through the Bible if you do it when you go to bed at night. If you're like me at least, because after about three minutes, it's playing and it's influencing your dreams, but you're out of it. Um, but we expose ourselves to the Word of God. And at first it may seem like this is a challenge, but there are wonderful helps out there to help you understand what you're reading. Uh, but most of all, when you read the Word, pray God the Holy Spirit would teach you. Open the eyes of your understanding to it. And it will absolutely begin to transform your thinking. And your heart will grow tender before the Lord. And as His Word is planted there, it's going to sink its roots deeply and begin to yield real fruit. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you increase in all of our lives a real hunger for your word. Um, a joyful hunger for your word, Lord. We don't view spending time in your word as uh, just a, a, an act of devotion um, that we do dutifully. 
but we approach your word as an opportunity to spend time fellowshipping with you, uh, being taught by you. We approach it as a joy, Lord, and an adventure because we are discovering more about you, more about ourselves, and we're discovering the wonderful promises you've given us so that we can lead the sort of life that you've planned for us. So increase this hunger, I pray, in all of our hearts. I pray that we find ourselves reaching regularly for your word with a hunger to spend time there. And that you grant us understanding, Lord, as we do. I thank you for this grace now in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.